0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm on the pastoral staff here. We are glad that you could join us today on this warm Sunday. Uh, If this is your first time here, as alluded to earlier, we are going through a sermon series on what's called the journey of faith. And the reason why we're going through this is because as a church, we believe the Bible describes faith not as simply an event there's a journey that God leads us to. But the question is, what does this journey look like? What does it look like to grow as a follower of Jesus? And to be honest, last week we talked about it's ambiguous. Oftentimes there seems like to be a little desert and they just a pastor just hand you a Bible, hand you instructions on prayer and goes, now go at it. And it's up to you and the spirit moving to see how you grow. Um, But a lot of people have thought about, well, is there a map for us? Are there landmarks for us to navigate through this journey? And we introduced last week this idea that there are, generally speaking, six stages of growth. It's on the screen right here. And we talked about how last week I just went through all the different stages. Uh, it's not always linear. You might start at stage three. You might start at stage two. Just a couple of things are clear. Most Christian thinkers argue that stages one to three is really different than stages four to six. Uh, there's, everyone talks about this idea of a wall and how you fall into some type of spiritual rut. And everyone agrees the end goal is to experience this union with Christ. To experience this life with God. This fullness of love that's there. Each stage is unique and has its own unique beauty, its own unique struggles. Uh, So it's not like, oh, when you're at stage one, you have lots to grow. It's actually that's a beautiful stage that some of us have to go back to sometimes. And we also talked about how we get stuck often in stages. We could stay in a stage for not just months, but years, even decades, even our whole lives. It's a theory, but it's just something that's helpful that's made explicit by Christian thinkers, but it's very implicit in the story of the Bible. And again, last week was just like an avalanche, just a lot of of overview and information. Today we're just going to slow down. We're going to slow down and look at one stage at a time, starting with the first stage here. So the recognition of God. What does it look like to begin this journey with God? What does it look like to uh, travel with God in the very beginning of your faith? Or what does it look like in this stage just to know who God is? And to answer that question, we're gonna look at a story in scripture that I feel like really illustrates this well. It's a very familiar story. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting church for the first time, you should be very familiar with this parable that Jesus gives. It comes from the gospel of Luke chapter 15. And we're reading from verses 11 all the way to verse 32. And here at our church, we believe believe that when we read the scriptures, our God is alive and he is living and he is speaking. So can we all rise together as we read through this parable? So Luke chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, starting in verse 11, Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sights. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with the feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him uh, him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with them. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is a reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, as we look at this familiar parable, this familiar story, say something new, unfamiliar to us, awaken our souls, stir us, O Lord, with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a church retreat. And if you've ever been to a church retreat, you know, especially here in California, it's like at the most obscure locations. You have to go on these Crazy mountains in the San Bernardino. It's like haunted. It's just the place that's cheapest that people could get away. And so I remember they told me, hey, when you drive up to this obscure retreat site, there's going to be no mobile service. So let us give you some directions. And so they emailed me the directions, basically saying, you're going to get off the freeway, you're going to make a couple of turns. It's going to be a windy road. But as you go- drive down this windy road, it's going to slowly become civilized. You will see a gas station, you'll see a supermarket, you'll start to see homes. And then at the retreat site, you're going to see this sign, this clear church sign. So just watch out for that sign. We hope to see you there. So I remember I went to this retreat site and I brought a friend with me to keep me company on this retreat site. And I remember going and I remember we're driving and we got off the freeway, we made a couple of turns, we got on this windy road, but instead of things turning more civilized, it became more wilderness there's a lot of trees that started popping up. All of a sudden, the asphalt became dirt and rocky and definitely did not see any church sign. And so I remember as we we're driving, my friend said, I think we're lost. I think we should turn around. And me, I'm not sure if you're like this, I'm like, oh, let's just keep going a little bit further because I think it will turn up at one point. And as we kept going at one point, all of a sudden, boom, dead end, sign that says road closed. And at that point, I was like, yeah, we're lost. We should probably go back. And so I remember we drove all the way back to the freeway and we realized we missed the first turn. There was like this initial turn that you were supposed to make right off the freeway and we missed it. And because we missed it, it just made our entire trip really wonky. It made the entire trip look like we're going the right way and yet we weren't and we ended up becoming lost. And I say this because a lot of you, you've been to church for a long time. Especially if you grew up in the O.C., church is just kind of a thing that you often do. And so I feel like for a lot of us here, if you look at the stages again, if we put it on the screen, the stages of faith... So on the screen, if we go back to the stages of faith. I'm going to keep saying it until the screen shows up. Do we have the stages of faith up here? Back there, screen, hello? Well, I don't think they're there. Anyways, so the stages of faith, can we put the stages of faith up there? Yes. Nope, back, back, there you go, there you go. Here are the stages of faith again. Um, It's pretty interesting. All the community groups at our church, we went through the stages of faith, and we said, hey, what stage are you at? And I'm shocked that most of our church thinks we're at stage four or five. Most of our church like, I'm at the wall. I'm at this crisis. That's where I'm at. And a lot of us here, I think we feel that way because you've been going to church for a long time and it's become routine. It feels dry to read and to pray. It's tiring or annoying to serve. And so you feel like, man, I've just been journeying with God for so long. I'm at stage four now. I'm at this place of like where I I grew, 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 but now I'm just stuck. And I hope God just really awakens my heart so I can reach full maturity. And I think that's kind of the sentiment that a lot of people who grew up in the church feels like. And possible. Maybe some of you are at the wall. But it also could be you feel this way because you missed that first turn. You've been journeying this whole time thinking that you're journeying and reading your Bible and serving and getting deeper with God, but it can't be God is not with you at all. You've never recognized God in this journey. Because think about it, how did, why did some of you even go to church? For a lot of you, it, it was like an arranged marriage. You just, your parents just forced you to go. And it's just been this automatic routine ever since. For some of you, you read and pray, but it's because you're told to read and pray. You know it's the right thing to do. There's no joy. It's fully duty. And that's all you remember about reading and praying. For some of you, you serve because we pressured you to serve. Like We, can, we like cornered you going, hey, man, we need help. Our kids, don't you care about children? And now you're serving and you're just doing all these activities for God. And it could be and now you feel like, oh, man, I feel lost because I hit a wall. Whereas in reality, you've been on this road this whole time and God's not even there. God's not even journeying with you. You're not even, perhaps, at stage one. Why do we get lost this way? What does it look like to recognize God on this journey? How can we experience stage one in our life? Luke chapter 15, this is a famous story, famously known as the prodigal son. It is the most famous and beloved parable in the Bible. And the main theme of this parable is about being lost. A lot of you have heard many sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, so was, or not the Sermon, the, the Parable of the Prodigal Son. Uh, So the most challenging thing about today is going to be saying something that's not as familiar, that doesn't feel like it's just repetition. But again, every no matter what sermon you might have heard of, everyone would agree it's all about being lost. And the reason why Jesus gives this parable is because of the people he's speaking to. In chapter 15, verses 1 to 2 is on the screen up here. This is how the parable begins. He actually says in verse 1, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, "This man welcomes sinners and eats with them." And this is what leads to this parable. Jesus all of a sudden gives three parables. He gives the parable of the lost sheep, he gives the parable of the lost coin, and then he gives this parable which is called the prodigal son, or that's how we know it as. Prodigal son is a misnomer. It's probably it's a lot of us Focus just on the first son. But if you notice in this parable, there are two sons. There's two sons who are featured here, as a younger son and an older son. And the reason why is because both of them are lost in different ways. And Jesus wants to let them know that, hey, people who I'm speaking with, you are just lost. There are different ways of being lost, but I want you to be aware of how you get lost. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at this parable by doing a character study of each of these characters, recognizing how we can be lost, and most especially though how we can be found. And so if you're here today and you're feeling a little spiritually lost, pretty dry while you are here, glad that you're here. I hope you know why you might be lost, but also most especially, how can you come home? So we're going to talk about three things. Number one, the lost younger son. We're first going to look at him. Second, we're going to look at the lost older son. Look at him. And then lastly, the good and gracious father. So the lost younger son, the lost older son, the good and gracious father. First, the lost younger son. Jesus begins this parable focusing first on the younger son, and he shows in the very beginning how lost this son is. We see how lost the younger son is by what he chooses to do right away. Look at verses 11 to 13 with me again. In verse 11 it says, Jesus also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country. The reason why the younger son's asking for this, you might have heard this before, is back then, if you passed away, your inheritance would go to your children. Here's the thing, though, you have to pass away. This father is still alive. So the son's going up to him, hey, give me the inheritance. He's pretty much saying, hey, you're, I, I want you to die. I don't want to live with you anymore. I'm done with this family. Give me what's owed to me and I'm going to be gone. And notice where the son goes. It doesn't say he goes to this country or this city that we're familiar with, but look what it actually says in verse 13. Where did he travel to? A distant country. It didn't matter where he went, so long as it was far, far away from his father far away from his his brother, far away from his obligations as a son, far away from his responsibilities as a family member. He just wanted to get as far away as possible so that he could live for himself, just be free, choose what he wants to do, make up his own identity, not adopting the identity that he inherited from his family. He wanted to get as far away as possible. That's the beginning of his lostness. Not only that, but look. notice how lost the younger son is by seeing how his life turns out. Verse 14 to 16, we can look at those verses. It says, And after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country, and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. I mentioned this before, but there's a TV show called Dirty Jobs. Have you ever heard of that TV show where this person, he pretty much finds the worst, dirtiest jobs in the country and he works at it, seeing which one's the worst. And he mentions there are two jobs are you just do not want to do. The first job is a sewer inspector. There are crazy things apparently in the sewer. Don't do that job, he says. Very dirty. And the second one is a cow inseminator. Just use your imagination of why that's dirty. But he had to do those two jobs, the worst jobs possible in the U.S. You don't want to find yourself doing those jobs. Jesus right here, painting the prodigal son where he ends up, this is the dirtiest job that a first century Jew could think of. To go and work with Gentiles, to go and work with the dirtiest animal at the time with how they knew it is a pig. They saw that as extremely dirty. You're making contact with it all the time. You're in the mud. This is Jesus' picture of somebody hitting rock bottom. And notice lastly that the younger son, how lost he is by how he plans to come back home. Look at his plan. In verse 17, he says this. When he came to his senses, the younger son said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. And look what he says. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. This is not false modesty. It's not like he's like, oh yeah, I'm unworthy, but I know you're gonna make me worthy. It's not that at all. This is actually a very, everyone understood, oh yeah, this is exactly right. This son has disqualified himself from his status as a son. He is no longer an heir to his father. And the only way he will be accepted back in the community is he has to work for it. If he came back to the community after what he did to his dad. Dude, they would probably stone him. They would probably beat this person. Like, get out of here. And so he planned, I'm gonna come back as a slave and earn my way back in this community because I disqualified my status. So I hope I could labor and have that status and then they will accept me. And that's how the, that's the younger son. Jesus is just painting this picture of what he does and how lost he is, how lost he became and how lost he is even when he comes home. And even though this is a very ancient parable, man, does it have modern themes. Because a lot of us here, if we're paying attention, all of us, there are parts of our lives that are very similar to this younger son. There's a book that I've been reading called Generations by, her name is Jean Twenge, and she's been studying different generations. This is like her life study. She, I think she's at the studies at, uh, works at the University of San Diego. And she was saying, pretty much looking at from the boomers to the Gen Xers to the millennials, the Gen Zers all the way to our kids right now they're known as Gen Alpha or the Polars and she looks at all the different ways of what shaped their generation the different features and characteristics and she has so much to say great book highly recommend if you want to understand your parents you want to understand your peers you want to understand your kids long book 600 pages but great book but one thing she says is that there's even there's a lot of information in that there are two Undeniable trends that are slowly increasing amongst all the generations. From boomers all the way to Gen Z to Gen Alpha, it's just increasing, this incline that's happening. Here's the first thing that's con- constantly increasing. There's, in our culture, we are becoming increasingly individualistic, more and more individualistic, where all of us are valuing even more than ever the idea of personal freedom and of choice. Uh, here's, an exa- here's a, a little c- example of how this works out. Gen Xers, if you had a Gen X parent or if you grew up Gen X, uh, if you had a family movie night, you had to choose a movie and everybody had to watch the movie. Because there's only one TV in the house. So if we're watching the Goonies, everybody's watching the Goonies. That's how it worked. If you grew up millennial, though, a little bit different. If you had, hey, let's do movie night, you might have two TV screens. And so the kids could watch one movie and the parents could watch the other movie. And that's how movie night is. How's movie night now for everybody? Everybody has their own screen. You don't have to watch anything. You could choose to stream whatever you want, five different members in the family, all in different rooms, streaming different things. Again, that's not a big deal. I'm not even saying that's wrong, but notice what that's doing. What that's causing is there's actually now a decrease of being forced to do something you don't want to do. There's so much more autonomy. Technology has made individualism all the more higher and higher as the generations have increased. And so what happens is, and this isn't just in TV, this is just all across the board. There's a decline in social obligations where the normal markers of a society is just declining of what people do. For example, marriages, people are dating, people are shacking up, that's all the same, but marriages is just on the decline across generations. Having children, on the decline all across generations. Way less in Gen Z than it was back then. In fact, we're at a population crisis potentially in the future because so few people are having kids. Social obligation, people don't want to do it. Even the idea of giving, people are less generous than ever before. If you look on Google Books, there's a, they looked up different words and the repetition of giving was really normal and high. It matched uh, giving and getting was the same thing. But now getting is way higher. The idea of getting, that word, it just appears everywhere on the bookshelves today because we are increasingly experiencing this incline of individualism or this inclined individualism, individualism and this decline of social obligation. We, are, we value our personal freedom. The idea of follow your heart, be true to yourself, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, all of that, it's not going to go away. In fact, you're going to see it amplified, double down with our children's generation. And here's the problem. In the midst of all the good that might do, the problem is if you want to be you, if you want to be true to your heart, which heart? Who's the real you? If you want to follow your desires and just freedom is just doing what you want to do, well, the problem is you often want to do different things at the same time. Every time I come home from work, you know, there's a part of me that I want to be present with my kids. I want to play basketball with my son. I want to just see my daughter's drawings. And yet at the same time, there's a part of me that wants to come home and just hide out in my room, just go on my phone, let my wife take care of the kids. There's like this dual temptation that's going on at the same time. There's another part of me where, you know, I want to live generously. I want to be content with my financial statements. I want to be content with my wardrobe. There's another part of me that, man, you know, when the latest iPhone comes out, I want to buy that. There's another part of me when I look on Amazon and I I love books, so I just see books and, ooh, I just want to buy those books. It's like this tension that's going on at the same time. I want to spend my mornings or evenings in scripture. I want to spend my mornings and evenings in prayer. I really want to do that. And yet another part of me wants to just veg out and watch Netflix. And the reason why I'm like that is if we mentioned our church many times before, we have different desires. We have strong desires and we have deep desires. And your strongest desires, they are not always your deepest desires. And so we're in conflict all the time. Because, and we're, because we're given all these choices. And not only do we see this rise of individualism, but uh, Jean Twenge, she actually says there's also a second thing that's happening across generations. Without, fa- without fail, without doubt. This is just from boomers all the way Gen Z. More individualistic, but also more dissatisfied with life. Uh, if you look in the chart here, this is uh, th- the scale of depression, different age groups, and the bottom one is all the boomers. Um, they're, they're just happy. They're cool. Versus as it gets higher and higher, that's the Gen Zers. Depression is just skyrocketing. And some people think, oh, it's because back then they didn't have this category of depression and so forth. Uh, she actually uses the rates of suicide as her measure. And that's just really objective, where suicide's at an all-time high compared to before. So it is objectively a way more depressing generation that we are living in. And the reason why this is happening, why we are dissatisfied with our lives is because I like the way she puts it. We're, there's, a, there's a difference between pleasure and happiness, and all of us are choosing to live by pleasure. Pleasure, uh, if you want a, a simple definition, pleasure is like dopamine. Pleasure is this thing where it feels good in the moment, and it's triggered by quick hits when you get that Amazon box in front of your house. Ooh, dopamine. When you go and you go shopping and you see a, a really awesome sale. Ooh, That's dopamine. When you go on social media and you see all these hearts liking your social media story, liking your post, that's all of a sudden this high comes into you. When you meet somebody, you sleep with them, and you just just feel this sense of pleasure in that moment. All of that is pleasure that you are living and what you are choosing to live by. But there's a difference between pleasure and what we call happiness. Happiness is not like dopamine. It's more like serotonin where it's, uh, it's a contentment over time. It's not this moment but where you're triggered by these quick hits, but it's triggered by a lifestyle. It's where you are exercising, and after a month, you're like, I feel good. That's serotonin. It's where you are eating healthy, and you just feel active and able to move. That's serotonin. It's where you don't just sleep with somebody, but you love them, and you're in a loving relationship with them. There's this type of high that people with just dopamine just do not understand. And here's the problem. Most of us, we are spending our days being shaped by pleasure and feeding our pleasure. And you are feeding in that moment your strongest desire. But when you, what we need to do is we to shape our days being feeding our happiness because you are feeding in that moment your deepest desire. And that's the problem. A lot of us here, we are just feeding and living off pleasure each and every day. And no wonder at the end of the year, there's this weird sense of we're full and yet dissatisfied. We're like that person who eats junk food, our bellies are full and yet something about us feels off. What do you really want? What is your like deep desire? And what Christians would argue is if you go deep enough in your heart, your heart aches for God. This type of love, this type of peace, this transcendence that the world just cannot offer you, deep down inside you want his presence. That's what you want. But here's the problem for a lot of us. A lot of us to follow God feels like slavery. It feels like what this younger son felt like. It feels like oppressive. It feels like you have to do things and live according to someone else's rules. And the reason why we feel like that, especially if you're a Christian and you say, oh yeah, this is me by struggle, is because you're too attached to the things of this world. You may say you follow Jesus, but man, you love the world. And this is a stage one issue where you just the world is just really attractive to you. You're really attached to these things and you don't trust that God's way is better, that what God caused you to do is better. Prayer and scripture, that seems so boring. How is that helpful to my life? Give away my money, be generous with it. That sounds very unwise. What about my savings? What about my retirement fund? Sexual chastity, that sounds like tyranny. That sounds so old-fashioned. Like how is that something that's appealing at all? Because we don't trust the goodness of the Father and we want to live far away from him. And don't be surprised if you're lost. Are you lost like this younger son? Do you see the younger son in any part of your life? Some of you who are Christians here in this room, you're so glad your friend is here. I'm so glad my friend is here to hear this. But in reality, this is also you. This is also me. Because some of you right now, you visit the father's house once a week on Sunday, better than this younger son. But the rest of the week, you live far from the father. You are far from his presence. There's a, lot, there's a chance, there's a possibility as a Christian, you're a Christian, but you are living by the flesh, not by the spirit. You're deeply attached to the world. And that wall you're hitting, it is not the wall you're thinking. That wall is your love for the world. It's very stage one. And Christian, you can never get out of stage one until you see the world as it is. But some of you here, you're a little bit different. You're like the younger son where you grew up in the church too, but you left You left a while back. You left the Father's house a long time ago, and yet for some reason you're here. Someone invited you, you have this weird sense of like, I don't know why I'm coming to church, but maybe you like football, or maybe I just feel like coming back here for some reason. And I just want you to know, if that's you, the response of the Father is to welcome you back home. Don't worry about your motives for now. Just welcome home. I like when one pastor, Richard Viotis, he says it like this about the prodigal son story, quotes on the screen. Is it on the screen? It's on the screen. (laughs) I'm just going to read it. The prodigal son, he doesn't return home because of renewed love for his father. He comes back home simply to survive because he ran out of money and he's starving. And his father is perfectly fine with that. Just come home. God just wants you home. Just know if you're here, come home. The father invites you and embraces you. But for some of us here, it might be a little different. The younger son, you're like, okay, that's, that's part of me. But for all, a lot of us here, I think, uh, we're, we might be more like the older son who's just as lost. The parable, it could have ended right here, but you know, remember, Jesus, he's speaking to not just tax collectors and sinners, but to Pharisees and religious people. And the reason why he's talking about this second son is because, again, you could be lost while you're living away from the father, or you could be living with the father and be just as lost, You be just as lost, and this is so subtle because the younger son he looks lost. You could tell like this person needs Jesus. The older son though he looks like he has Jesus, and what Jesus says is like, but he's really lost, and it's really scary because we don't know when we're like that. What are some signs that you're like the older son? There's at least three signs we could see from this text. The first sign that you're lost like the, the older son is this: joylessness. You are joyless in your faith. Notice when this son, when, he, when we first meet him in verse 25, what's happening? There's a party. Everybody's celebrating. The younger son is back. The father's throwing a feast for him. And who's the only person not celebrating? The older son. It's like when we were clapping earlier today everyone's clapping, but one person's not clapping. They, do not, they refuse to join the party. Look at what it says in verse 25. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And then verse 28, look what he says, and he became angry and did not want to go home. You know why he's so angry? Verse 29 reveals everything. It's not like he was just joyless in this moment, he's always been joyless. Verse 29, look what it says. He says, Look, I have been slaving for you these many years. Do you feel like this towards God? When was the last time you felt any joy in your faith, Christian? This is how, when you, especially when you grow up in the church, man, does this seep in? Where you go to church faithfully, you look good, you seem like you're really close to the Father, you're in the Father's house. But man, is Sunday a drag for you? Is Sunday a drag? Like, it takes all your might to come here, sleepy, tired. And when people are like singing, you're just like watching them, you'll lip the words, but you know, arms crossed, just like watching the praise team go. There's just no joy. What's there to be celebrating? Why is everyone so happy? We're just kind of like, just there. Man, Sunday sermons are a drag to you. I remember someone was telling me like, hey, you know, everybody checks fantasy football during a sermon. I was like, oh yeah, I know. I'm very aware, I know. Uh, It's like when my son wants to watch TV and doesn't eat his food. Oh, you know what's happening there? He's not hungry. I think for a lot of us, you're not hungry. The, The fantasy football is way more interesting than anything here to you. Anything here, like, come on, just hurry up, bro. I gotta get my fantasy. Or IG stories, you know, oh man, I can't wait till after. Like, I just need to scroll up there. Why? We're just bored to death. We believe it, but we're bored to death. And man, reading our Bible, praying, serving, it's just a drag. It feels like I've been slaving for these many years. And again, I don't mean to guilt trip us, but I just want to point out the reality that a lot of us here, it's been a long time since we felt like celebrating with the Lord. it felt like a long time since we felt joyful, if ever. And that could be, yeah, that's like the older brother. That's like the older son, a joylessness. Here's the second thing that's there. Anger. The second sign is anger. Anger towards life. Anger towards God. Man, is the older son, you could just sense the resentment. As resentful as a first century Middle Eastern person could be. Verse 29, look what he says. Look, I've been slaving these many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Oh, man, is he bitter? Is he resentful? Because he stayed home. He worked hard. He has a point, doesn't he? Don't you want to almost side with him? Be like, yeah, he's right. He's done all this and he has nothing to show for it. And yet this is us oftentimes where, man, like we do so much and we just slowly get bitter and angry. And just know this happens, especially when you turn like 30 or 40. In your teenage years and 20s, it's kind of easy to be happy. I mean, life is, dude, if you're in college, no offense, but the university pays for your dorm, like the loans come later, like you get to have friends. Like it's awesome. Like enjoy, enjoy that time. Not to say it's all downhill from there, but it might be downhill from there. <laughs> Because what happens in your 30s and 40s, you you look back at your 20s and you're like, you know, I could be obedient and trust God's plan and submit to him and wait for like the perfect guy and girl, wait for like the perfect career. But once you turn like 30, 40, and all that potential is now gone, it's just reality. It's like, dude, what the heck? Like I tried so hard to be good, to be moral, and yet I'm the only single person amongst my friends I tried so hard to be faithful to my spouse, and we can't have kids. I tried so hard to work. I went, I went to UCLA. I went to Stanford. And I see all these people who didn't go there. They have way higher pays than me. They have a way nicer home to me. And it's like, dude, that's when all of a sudden you get bitter. You get angry. If you don't believe me, just talk to one of us older persons. And you can feel it. This, like, shade of, like, tension. This low-key anger where you're here on Sundays praising God, but every other day, Monday to Saturday, there's this low-key bitterness that colors your life. That's the older son, this anger that's there. Here's a third sign. Not only are you joyless in your faith, not only are you angry at life, but a third sign that you, or third sign that you become like the older son is you are critical towards other people. The main reason this older son is angry isn't the fact that they're celebrating, but why they're celebrating. They are celebrating this younger son who does not deserve it. Verse 30, look what it says. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The whole town is here celebrating and the son, he is so upset about that because the older son, he's, if you're like him, when you look at people who messed up their lives, you do not empathize, you can only criticize. What's wrong with that person? When you see somebody who comes late to church, you just judge, oh, that person's not faithful. That person's not faithful. You have a quick judgment rather than a quick idea of like, oh, understanding. You exclude rather than include. You condemn rather than have compassion. And this reveals the main reason why this older son is so lost. He does not care about the things the father cares about because the father cares deeply about this younger son, but the older son, that doesn't matter to him at all. And you guys know the TV show Wild Kratts? All the parents know Wild Kratz is this TV show. It's a cartoon. It's the Krat brothers. They talk about animals and they transform and they become animals. It's kind of wonky, right? So that's, but the kids love it. My kids love Wild Kratz. And man, I guess, I guess the mobile devices are hearing us because I got an email recently about Wild Kratz out of nowhere. And it told me in the email, Wild Kratz live in Anaheim coming October. Buy your pre-sale tickets now. And I remember I saw that, I was like, oh my goodness. How do I get these tickets? And I try to like reserve it. And the reason why is because, not because I care about wildcrats. My kids, they love wildcrats. I am very interested in wildcrats because my kids are interested in wildcrats. But some of you, you, you claim to be a Christian your whole life. And the only things you care about are the things you care about. And if God happens to care about it, you're down. Community, yes, I love community. You would do that anyways. Serve the city, oh, I'm tired. Even though that's God's heart. We, we tend to just choose the things we want to do, the things that God conveniently matches, but the things he wants us to do that we don't care about, it's like, ah, uh, I don't really care about that. Because like the older son, you may live with the father, but you don't really care about the father. Because if you care about the father, the things that he cares about, you would care about. See, Jesus, he's trying to show us through this second son how you can be lost even at home. Do you recognize yourself in this? On YouTube, there's this video, these types of videos I like watching. Uh, it's, uh, you know, jiu-jitsu. So there's these jujitsu guys, or black belts, so they can, like, dominate people. They go to these random gyms, and they put on a white belt. So they're pretending to be white belts, and they roll with, like, blue belts and brown belts and purple belts, and man, it's, like, funny. They just, like, own all of them and all of them are shocked because this guy is supposed to be a white belt but they're just doing these moves they never saw and at the very end the guy, he goes, I'm actually a black belt and everyone laughs, it's these funny things, to like humble everybody at the gym and there's are funny videos to watch but there's uh, less funny videos I watch where you have people who are white belts but they pretend to be black belts. They come in with the black belt and who knows why they're doing that, it might be they just want their respect, they don't want to go do their work or who knows what it is but it becomes really clear that they're not a black belt. Like, they don't know the basics of jujitsu. So, man, the gym just like owns them. And what happens at that moment is that the, you'll see the instructor going, Take off that belt. Like, you are not a black belt. It's so clear you're not a black belt because we just owned you. And people who have black belts, they don't get owned in the gym like that. And I think for a lot of us here, this kind of matches the churchy Christian, where you think, Oh, yeah, I'm at stage four, I'm at stage five. But man, is real life exposing you? Man, is life exposing you? Like when you're serving, when you're part of a community, you think, man, you just, for some reason, you just can't get along with people. Like it's just hard to love people and forgive people. When you serve, you just have this complaining heart all the time. You're just always complaining, complaining, complaining. Friendships, they always turn weird and you're just like, what's wrong with that person? Marriage is just kind of this mirror where you're just like, man, my marriage, what's wrong with my spouse? You have, you, when, you, when suffering happens, you get really depressed and you like disappear for a long time. And the reason why is because, oh, it could be you thought you were a black belt this whole time but life is just owning you and you're actually a white belt. In other words, you have a lot to grow, and you know who hates hearing that the most? Religious people. Could you imagine if Jesus told the Pharisees, "Hey guys, you guys are think you're hot stuff. You guys think you know God. You're actually a white belt. You're behind the tax collectors." Do you think the Pharisees to be like, "You're right. You're you for pointing that out, Jesus." I don't think so. I think they'd be really angry. How dare you call me a white belt? How dare you tell me to take a discipleship class? How dare you presume I don't know the gospel? How dare you? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what my title was at my parachurch? Do you know what I did at my old church? Do you know how many mission trips I went on? Do you know how long I've been going to church? You know what Jesus says to those people? Last in the kingdom. Last in the kingdom. Because you know who's first in the kingdom? It's those who admit, I am so lost. Easy to admit, I am lost Those are first in the kingdom. That's why the tax collectors and sinners are parading ahead of the religious priests, of the religious Pharisees. Some of you, you're a spiritual white belt and you know you're a spiritual white belt. You're like the younger son. What you need to do is you need to go to the gym. You need to roll more. You need to learn to follow Jesus. Don't just be satisfied with your white belt. Grow, follow Jesus, be with other followers and that's how you grow. But some of you, the reason why you're not growing is you think you're a black belt, but you're a white belt, and you're too prideful to admit it. All your titles prevents you from just engaging with anything spiritual. You're above everything. You're above worship. You're above any Bible study. You're above all of that because you know it already. And yet you are so joyless. You're so angry. You're so critical. And it just shows maybe how far you are from the Father. Sure, you live in the Father's house, you're familiar with the Father's house, but man, you do not know the Father right now. And what probably you need to do most to grow is take off that black belt, humbly accept that white belt, and get ready to learn. Get ready to learn that maybe stage one, that was never in your life. In other words, we need to recognize God again. And who is this God? This goes to the last point, the good and gracious Father, <laughs> We've met many people in our lives, I think, who are like this younger son. You know, the crazy Christian who loves the world and so forth. And we met many people who are like this older son, especially in the church, who we presume were far more mature than we think we are. But have you ever met someone like this father? The story begins with the lostness of the younger son. It ends with the lostness of the older son. But you know the main character is actually this father? And if you pay attention to this father, man, is he an interesting father. He's a good and gracious father. Look at the beginning of the story. When the son makes his request, going, hey, give me my estate. I need all my money right now. In the ancient Near East, you know what the only proper response that should have been? The father should have grabbed the son by the ear, thrown out and just start beating him. And everybody would be like clapping. Like, that's right. That's what the father should do. And yet what did the father do? He, the, he sold his property. And imagine that, a father going and he has to sell his property. One third of his property he has to sell because his son has disowned him. How insulting. And yet that's what the father did. Notice when the son returns home after losing all of his money. I, I know for me, if I imagine coming home after that, I imagine my father just crossing his arms going, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Look who came crawling back. And yet what does his father do? Look at verse 20. To 20 uh, verse 20. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and he ran and threw his arm around his neck and kissed him. His father saw him far away, meaning his dad was looking for him for a long time. Is today gonna be the day my son comes back? Is today gonna be the day my son comes back? He's always looking for his son and when his son finally comes, he runs. Again, back then, first century, men, especially fathers, do not run. You have to pull up your little thing there and just run. It looks very undignifying. And if the father didn't care, he just ran, and <laughs> just ran to the son, embraced him, kissed him. And notice what it says in verse 22. He says, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. What's he doing there? That's very intentional. The son came back as a slave. The father didn't even let him finish his speech. He said, no, 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 you're my son. Your status is fully restored. And notice not only that, but at the, with the second brother, the end of the story, man, this dad, he's celebrating a joyful time. Then all of a sudden, it's like hearing your kid cry in the middle of a birthday party. You're like, oh, to go see my kid. That's like what he went through. He, his son was missing, his older son. In the middle of this party, his, the grand feast, he goes out in the cold, in the dark. He finds his son. And what does the older son do? Look, and he starts talking to his father that way. If my son said, look to me, oh man, you won't see my son again. Like he will be missing. But what does his father do? His father, he affirms his son. He pleads with him to come back. Like, what in the world? Like, who is this guy? What kind of dad is like that? In fact, many people say this story should not be called the prodigal son. It should be called the prodigal father. Do you know what the word prodigal means? Here's the definition of prodigal on the screen. Next slide. Recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. This father is recklessly extravagant with his love. He has spent everything. Like, what in the world? Like, this father, he just keeps pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And both sons, they are lost until they recognize this about their dad, that he is prodigal with his love. Have you ever met anyone in your life like this father? Who is this father supposed to be? Let me answer that with a question. Do you know what the most quoted verse in the Bible is by the Bible? So not the most quoted verse that you hear Christians speak, but which verse in the Bible does the Bible quote the most about itself? It's really fascinating. Not John three sixteen. 16, it's not in Leviticus where you know God is holy. There's a verse that is more than any other verse, arguably, that is more quoted, more alluded to, more prayed about, more sung in all the Bible. You know what it is? Exodus chapter thirty four, verse six to seven. Here's the verse The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. That is the most repeated, alluded to, sung about verse in the Bible, by the Bible, by any, in any other verse, because this is who the God of the Bible is. The only way you will meet someone like the father of this parable is to meet the God of the Bible, who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. That's not what he has to try to become. That is who he is. When, if you did something shameful right now, I have to try my best to not judge you. Like I have to try my best, but you know, we all do shameful stuff and I have to like consciously think about that. But scripture tells us, you know what God's natural response is to that? It's compassion. Naturally compassionate to your shame. If you annoy me, I have to try to be patient. There's people who annoy me, I have like, you know, count to three, just be patient. But God's visceral reaction to your annoyance is is nothing more than abounding love. And for those of you, when people hurt me, man, do I, I have to really try not to get angry, not to talk smack about them. But God's automatic response is graciousness. He doesn't have to try, that's just the way He is. If you struggle believing this, just look at creation, how abundant God is. Uh, there's a story I was reading about this pregnant lady. And I guess when you're pregnant, sorry ladies, I'm totally mischaracterizing, but she's pregnant and she just noticed all life differently. Like, wow, everyone's pregnant. Like, she just sees everything in a different lens. And she was describing this kind of kooky way, like, all the world is, like, flourishing with life, she just realized. Like, there's so many plants, so many trees, so many insects. It's just flourishing. And one point that she was trying to make is that's kind of who the author of creation is. You know, we have 90% more brain cells than we need. You only need 10% of your brain cells. And for some reason, our brains are just popular with 90% more. Why? You know, there are there's seeds just scattered everywhere, billions of seeds. They don't ever grow. And it, it's just scattered everywhere. Why? Because God is prodigal. He gives, He's generous, He's gracious. He's not, he's not really flimsy with that. He's not scarce that. He is pouring it out. Look at creation and see how generous God is. And if you don't believe in creation, look at the cross. Look at what God did at the cross. This father in the parable, he endured insults of his two sons, but there is a father in heaven who endures insults of all the sons that he has and all the daughters. There's a father in the parable who was searching and looking for a son to come back, but the parable says that there's actually a father in heaven who's searching for all of those who belong to him to come back. There's a father in the parable where he leaves the feast, goes out into the cold to go find his lost righteous son. We have a heavenly father who will go into this cold world, leaving the, the feast of heaven, searching for you and me. And we have a father just like this one in the parable who loves both types of sons that are just lost. And we're told in the gospel that there's a heavenly father who loves those who are lost, no matter how you're lost. The cross tells us that Jesus came from heaven was shamed on your behalf, his life torn apart because he's a savior who came to search and save the lost. When you recognize this about God, when you see this about God, this is when you know, you're stage one. This is stage one because God is prodigal, lovingly generous, gracious, and compassionate. And when you recognize this, man, is this a challenge and man, is this a consolation. The challenge is, if God is generous like this, just know he is always inviting you back to him. All the time. There are probably, if you look back at your life, like thousands of invitations that he has extended your way. He just throws seeds everywhere. It's all good. And you probably respond to like two of them. Two, two of them you probably responded to your whole life. But every opportunity you have, it's an invitation from God. Every hardship you have, it's an invitation from God to come home. That's a challenge. But here's the consolation. If you've missed all those opportunities, man, there's so many more opportunities. God's always going to be inviting you. You haven't prayed for 39 days? Wait till that 40th day. His mercies are new each and every morning. I know for me personally, this is a huge consolation because I grew up just thinking God is a scary God who's mad at me, who's going to judge me when I come back, who I don't know how he feels about me. Because I've experienced seasons like the younger brother and the older brother. I'm like the younger son and the older son. But it's encouraging to know that there's a father in heaven who tells me, look at creation, look at the cross, look at my words, and he tells us that he is inviting me home. He is a gracious, good father. This is grace. This is when you experience grace. This is when you experience stage one. This is when you recognize who God is. So to conclude, this parable, it's interesting cliffhanger. Uh, The younger son, what happens to him? Does he change his ways? Is he now like a faithful son? The older son, does he go to the party? Does he actually enter into the house? We don't know. The parable descends, because it's meant to invite you. Hey, younger sons, older sons, come. Come to the house. What are you going to do? Don't worry about what they're going to do. What are you going to do? Come to the house. And what does it look like to live with the father? I'll show on the screen right here. This is what it looks like. Next slide. Next slide. Let's go to the screen. Next slide. We're all waiting in anticipation. Of the last slide. Is it not there? It's all good. The next stage, I'm just going to paint it for us. It's, uh, if you want to know what it looks like in the Father's house, man, I had an awesome picture too, but it's all good. I'll just describe it to us. What it looks like in the Father's house from stage one to stage two it's a life of discipleship. Some of you think you've been following Jesus for a long time, but man, you haven't even started. You haven't even started reading your Bible the way you should read your Bible, you haven't been praying the way you should be praying. Because this journey is a God who is loving, good, and gracious journeying with you here and see how God forms you when you get discipled by this God. And so as I invite the praise team, can I just invite us to a time of prayer? When you hear the different sons and the way they are lost, can you relate to their lostness at all? Which son would you say describes you? How is the father inviting you into his home? we just go into pause to reflect And to even just confess, for some of us here, it might be that, man, we are just really attached to the world, and that's just a clear block for us of how we can grow. For others of us, it's like, man, I'm clinging to my black belt, and I have just not humbled myself in a long time. But just know wherever you're at, the Father invites you to come back to him. And so can we take a moment to pause and to pray, and then I'll close us all together in a word of prayer.